Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. It's May 18th. 1897, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So today was the day of the premiere of Bram Stoker's Dracula. That's right, I said premiere, not publication. (laughs) The book was published eight days later on the 26th of May, 1897, but on the 18th of May... Specifically, the morning of the 18th of May, 1897, Bram Stoker put on what, by all accounts, was a dreadful, tedious and very long production (laughs) of his stage adaptation of his own novel that no one had read yet at the Lyceum Theatre in London. Quite a big space to put this on. But he was able to pull a few strings there, I think we can assume, because he was the business manager of the Lyceum Theatre at the time. Not many people have the opportunity to put on a, <laughs> a kind of improvised show of their novel. <laughs> yeah. And yet only two people came. It wasn't the premiere that he might have hoped for, except for the fact that it was exactly the premiere he hoped for. Yes, because the whole thing was essentially like a legal technicality and a really clever mm. one when you look back on it. So what it was is to copyright the characters that he'd created in the book Dracula and it's kind of amazing really to think that he did invent those characters but Mm. he did Count Dracula did not exist in popular myth before Bram Stoker wrote him Mm. and he got the name Dracula out of a very dry book written by an ex-civil servant about Wallachia and Moldovia in a museum library and he knew that he should protect it and because he worked at the Lyceum Theatre he knew that if you submitted a play to be performed back in those days, it had to be approved by the Lord Chamberlain's office because things had to be censored. And so he knew that if he submitted the play script to the Lord Chamberlain's office, then he was effectively ensuring he would retain copyright on the characters for dramatic use anyway, because there's a rubber stamp saying, we've read this on this date and you were the first person to submit it to us. And accordingly, I do feel really sorry for those two people who stumbled in off the street (laughs) expecting something. I don't know what they were expecting, but what they got apparently was a prologue and five acts with 40 scenes in total that would have run for apparently about six hours. And at the end of the play, according to the sort of the remnant notes that we still have of the first run, it just gets increasingly just pages that were torn out of the manuscript of the book and stuck into this thing. So by the end, the actors had really just read reading the book in advance of its release. The tragedy of it really is that he was right, real success of the characters would be in dramatic form, but it didn't really happen until movies. There have been over 200 films of Dracula, but they were all made after he died. That's right, but they did actually get based on a play. It was eventually turned into a play, which happened in the early 1920s. And a young actor who was called Hamilton Dean joined the Lyceum Theatre and made that connection with Stoker while he was still alive, but then didn't go on to come up with this play until 
after Stoker's death, at which point he got the rights from Stoker's widow Florence, who herself was by then embroiled in this legal dispute with the makers of Nosferatu, which was, as it turns out, this knockoff version of Dracula that was completely unauthorised. Yeah, that's what Nosferatu really means in Romanian, knockoff. <laughs> well, it is weird, isn't it? Because when you watch Nosferatu, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but you think, oh, it's Dracula. The way that you describe that is like something you do habitually as well. <laughs> you know, when on a Friday evening you put on Nosferatu. I mean, I've seen it on several occasions. <laughs> it had such an influence on kind of shaping that dramatic perception of Dracula, but yeah. they very lightly adjusted the details in a mm. kind of half-assed attempt to avoid copyright infringement. Dracula is actually called Count Orlock in the intertitles, if you've seen them. They sort of change from vague names and they make it set in Germany, but obviously it's the exact same story. Although it's the first depiction of Dracula being killed by sunlight because in the novel mm. it only hurt him. Yeah, stake through the heart, isn't it, in the novel? Sorry, spoiler, on a 120-year-old <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah, and so Florence Stoker did challenge it. I think she actually had some success at one point and the filmmakers ordered to stop distributing the film, but copies kept circulating and it sounds like eventually she sort of just gave up trying to fight it. The story is that it survives because the first two copies of the film had been sent and were on their way to the States. All of the copies that were in Europe were ordered to be destroyed, but the two that were en route to the US survived and it has become subsequently the classic that we know of all of which is very interesting but as i say stoker was dead i mean he died in 1912 he left behind 4723 pounds his obituaries didn't even mention dracula which is astonishing yeah. isn't it it's word association now if you say bram stoker you think dracula Presumably they described him more as the business manager of the Lyceum because he did write a lot of other novels, but they were all shockingly, uniformly quite bad. Mm. No one ever said, oh, this is almost as good as Dracula. They were all several levels below Dracula. Well, one of his most popular was two volumes about working with Henry Irving, who was a really famous actor at the time, who was the actor-manager of the Lyceum Theatre. Yeah, and allegedly who Bram Stoker based Dracula's mannerisms on. And that was intended as a compliment, because obviously if you overlook the vampire fact, Count Dracula is a perfect gentleman in the opening chapters, if you recall. Yes, and Henry Irving had played Mephistopheles in Faust quite a lot. You can see the comparison there, can't you, between the Eastern European shady but kind of intriguing aristocratic man of letters and how he might have done Mephistopheles in the West End. So it must have really hurt Bram Stoker when he'd written this thing. He'd been Henry Irving's dog's body for like 30 years or something. And then he said, I'm doing a play reading upstairs. Do you want to come and do it? And he was like, no, mate, sorry, busy. I've got a show to do. <laughs> we look at Dracula now as being a horror novel but at the time it was part of this wave of what was called invasion literature mm. it started off with this book called the battle of Dorking which was about an invasion of Britain by I think it was by Prussia so it started off as being anxieties around the empire and everything and then it got into weird supernatural stuff like war of the worlds was part of this wave mm. and so Dracula kind of fits neatly into that Dracula's like this mysterious foreigner and he ends up you know coming to the UK on a boat and in Nosferatu it's even more explicit I mean he literally like brings the plague with Rebecca him. have you ever written the york notes on dracula <laughs> <laughs> i understand you studied it for a level yes i did study it for a level so if you want any insights into some of the more evocative Themes, imagery etc yeah yeah language. i can tell you about how the weather reflects what the characters are feeling <laughs> much like this one page of much ado about nothing that i happen to have also read <laughs> <laughs> i think we'd get a really good insight into 18 year old rebecca as well <laughs> oh it was so bad at one point we were allowed to write our own piece of coursework based on something to do with hamlet and i wrote an essay comparing it to taxi driver and in retrospect <laughs> i was like such a fucking wannabe cool try hard <laughs> 
<laughs> have you read Dracula, Arian? Uh, no, I haven't. I started reading it when we decided on doing this podcast, but I, I didn't get very far. Okay, so me too. I've never read Dracula. Guys, mm. where did you go to school? <laughs> yes, we do research, Rebecca. Yeah, I believe. <laughs> I was completely captivated in a way that I really wasn't expecting. Mm. Rebecca, this is old news to you, obviously. Come on. <laughs> you can put that blue highlighter away. I didn't realise that the whole thing is essentially like the Blair Witch Project found footage, mm. isn't it? That's yeah. how it's constructed. But like a hundred years before, the whole thing's journal entries and diaries and found yeah. letters. And Stoker wanted it to say up right up front, this is a true story. Everything that you read in this is true. And his editor was like, nope, 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 and took it all out. So yeah, so he really did intend it to, to, uh, to read that way. But that's so clever, isn't it? If you're a bit of a so-so writer, which I think we can all agree he is, that's <laughs> such a clever way to structure a novel, isn't it? Because you... Mm. For a start, you don't have to write much dialogue because it's all someone's memory of what happened. And secondly, you just jump to the good bit. Just cut out the crap, don't you? Which yeah, is but incredible. the only thing with those is when you read novels like that, you get to that part at the end of the chapter where it says, I came across an old book and opened it. And you're like, oh, no, the next chapter's just going to be them <laughs> doing like a fake chapter from an old book. <laughs> and actually, the fact that Bram Stoker was a civil servant for all those years before he was a theatre manager, I think, again, he brilliantly incorporates because there's some pretty boring detail that the character Jonathan writes in his diary that makes it feel authentic. Like, he's, he's exploring Eastern Europe and he talks about, like, the paprika they put in their chicken and ordnance survey maps. And you're like, yes, that's exactly what a boring person would write. <laughs> so in terms of where Stoker got his inspiration for Dracula, there's a lot of speculation that he might have seen reports of an incident that happened five years earlier in Rhode Island in which a young girl was exhumed... She had died of TB and her family had died of TB and her brother was ill with TB. And so the villagers dug them, all the bodies up and noticed that she still had some blood in her heart. So they burned her heart and liver mm. and used the yeah. ashes to make a tonic to feed to her brother, who unsurprisingly died. Uh, why would that be your first thought? <laughs> this was part of a wider New England vampire folklore that had been going on at that point for the, well over 100 years. In Manchester, Vermont in 1793... The local town history describes a heart-burning ceremony thusly. Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in the sacrifice to the demon vampire, who it was believed was still sucking the blood of the then-living wife of Captain Burton. It was the month of February and good slaying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, so long as it was temperate. <laughs> Tomorrow. Archetypes, they're still there. You know, the football jock who secretly loves to sing, the shy girl who has the great voice. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, part of the ACAST Creator Network.